Hello there from Bedford. How are you all? How are you all coping with the lockdown? I know I seem to be asking this every intro right now, but we are in these very strange times and sometimes the news gets a little bit worse sometimes. Some of the reports are a little bit sad seeing the expansion of this virus across Europe and now in the US and potentially what's going to happen in Africa. It's all, you know, it's all very sad. But I do hope you are all doing okay. You're staying healthy, both in body and mind. And I do have another show for you today. So welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got an interview with Scott Horton. He is the founder and the director of the Libertarian Institute. And I got him on so we can discuss a libertarian response to the coronavirus. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. So first up today, we have Coin Tracker. And I recorded a very short bonus show recently with their CEO, Chandon, to talk about tax because I know some people have an issue with this. Please do go and check that out. Don't worry, you don't have to pay tax if you don't want to. But if you do, and with tax season upon us, it might be time to get your shit together. And I've been using Cointracker to calculate my taxes. Yes, I do pay my taxes. No, I don't want to go to jail. And got to be honest, with Cointracker, it couldn't be easier. It's so easy to plug in your wallets and exchanges. The tax is calculated in minutes. It works for the US, UK, Canada, and Australia. It is free if you have 200 or fewer transactions. But if you do have more transactions, you can get a 10% discount by using the link cointracker.io forward slash A forward slash WBD. That is C-O-I-N-T-R-A-C-K-E-R dot I-O forward slash A forward slash WBD. Also, Sat Street have launched. They've been going now for nearly a month. If you haven't checked them out, they are making it easy as possible for you to send Bitcoin to everyone you know. And in this times right now, with governments printing money and the impending threat of more inflation, it might be a good time to introduce your friends to Bitcoin and Sat Street make it so easy for you. But not only that, they give you ways to earn Bitcoin by bringing together all the top referral programs in the industry in one place. Also, Sat Street will reward you for every person you invite that earns Bitcoin. It couldn't be easier. If you want to find out more, head over to satstreet.com, which is S-A-T-S-T-R-E-E-T.com. Also, you should all be aware by now that Blockchain Week is off in New York. Consensus won't be happening in New York, but they are making it a virtual event now, and it is completely free. If you purchase a ticket to Consensus 2020, they will be issuing full refunds, but they are offering this free event where they're going to bring together Bitcoiners to help educate, grow, and create meaningful connections. So if you want to find out more, head over to consensus2020.com, which is C-O-N-S-E-N-S-U-S 2020.com. Okay, so onto the show, and I've got Scott Horton on, which I'm very glad to have. I first heard about Scott last year. I was taking a long drive from New York to Ohio, which is quite a boring drive, and I ended up listening to, oh God, God knows how many, but a whole bunch of Tom Woods shows. And as part of that, there was this Scott Horton series, and I didn't know Scott. And I was really taken by his anti-war message and also his takes on libertarianism. And I have been wrestling with a lot of my own thoughts as I have gone down the libertarian rabbit hole this last year. I'm not there I'm not an anarcho-capitalist yet. I do have a lot of questions, but I've been really wrestling with a lot of it during this crisis because there are a lot of trade-offs with giving state more power and what the impact of the coronavirus could be. And I'm trying to wrestle it in, in a responsible way, and there has been some backlash. So it was a very good time to get Scott on, very good time to talk about some of these things, some of the things I'm wrestling with, because 
as I want to learn more about libertarianism, I know there are different libertarians who probably argue amongst themselves. And I benefit from reaching out to someone like Scott and talking about some of the things I'm wrestling with. So I'm really, really glad I got to get him on the show. So if you enjoy this, you've got any questions about it, do feel free to reach out to me. It's really good to hear from people. I know some people are wrestling with some of these complex problems like myself. Not everyone is just running around shouting bootlicker and status. Some people are actually wrestling with these problems as well. But whatever your opinion, if you fundamentally disagree with me or if you are wrestling with the same issues, if you want to have a chat about it, please do reach out to me. I have received a few emails. Happy to chat about it. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, if you are trying to survive this lockdown, if you're a bit bored, you might want to try and check out a couple of my films that are up on YouTube. I've made two films about kind of about Bitcoin. I went to the Venezuela border, Cucuta, and also went into Venezuela. So they're up on YouTube, but you can find them on my other podcast website, which is defiance.news. Also, I've been covering the coronavirus on my Defiance podcast. I had a very interesting interview with a doctor who is based out of an ICU in London. Quite an emotional one. Uh, if you want to check that out, that's also up at defiance.news news anything else feel free to hit me up and i'll speak to you all soon scott hi there how are you i'm doing great thanks for having me no worries thank you for coming on the show i became aware of you last year i took a long drive when i was out in the u.s from uh, new york to ohio and i was on a tom woods marathon and you were doing a whole week of shows with him mm -hmm. so i became aware of your work and for a while i've wanted to talk to you and and obviously there's a topic on everyone's mind right now is this coronavirus thing and in doing a bitcoin show i i became introduced to libertarianism because of this and austrian economics and i've kind of gone down the rabbit hole a little bit but i've not always been there and sometimes i'm fighting with the libertarians so i thought it'd be good to get someone like you on and talk about what's going on with this crisis at the moment because i'm struggling with a few things is that okay with you sure all right cool so Interestingly, I read an article this morning on the Libertarian Institute website. So I'll tell you what happened is that I put out a tweet this week, which rolled a few people up. I said to them, right now, I use the, uh, the swear word, I said, right now, I think I'm a statist. Because I actually believe right now, maybe centralised planning for the government is the thing we need to get through this crisis. And what I was wrestling with is the idea that, that I should just stand by 100% libertarian principles when... We're in a moment of crisis and an extreme scenario, and that rolls some people up. Now, is this something that you yourself as a libertarian wrestle with at the moment? A little bit. You know, um, I'm not sure if this is the article that you mentioned, but we are running one this morning uh, by Sheldon Richman, uh, founding partner of the Libertarian Institute, called Libertarianism in Emergencies. And That's the one. Yeah, so he starts out saying that, look, if... And, and libertarians have always, you know, debated these kinds of questions, right? So um, obviously we put individual property rights first, but then he comes with uh, the example, say you're lost in the woods in a blizzard and you come upon a cabin and break in and cook yourself a meal and start a fire in the fireplace to, in order to survive, that that's acceptable. That yes, you're trespassing, but you're doing so to prevent a much greater harm, that is your own death. And presumably for the sake of argument, there's nobody home. So you're not really kicking in the door on somebody who's trying to exclude you, uh, this kind of thing. Or, you know, the idea, somebody's house is on fire. So you have to trespass onto their property to kick in their door and save them from the fire or, you know, something like this, you know, uh, a de facto easement type of a situation. You have to cross somebody's property to get to somebody else's property. 
in the case of an emergency, something like that. And these are not really, you know, an emergency does not necessarily override libertarian principles because, you know, the libertarian principle is life first. And so, you know, that doesn't mean that we're willing to compromise anything to the nth degree, but it means that, yes, it's possible for there to be exceptional circumstances. Uh, you know, I think the real, the real insight of libertarianism is just, it starts with, as it says in the American Declaration of Independence, that everybody is born with natural rights and dignity, and they have the right to their own life because they own it. It's their own. And therefore, they have the right to all the property that they have justly acquired uh, and, and should be protected from forced theft and fraud. And then from there, yeah, this is what um, Sheldon calls the non-aggression obligation, not just the non-aggression principle, but that we owe it to each other to not aggress against each other. Now, from there, people have a lot of different ideas about exactly how that plays out. Obviously, uh, you know, the main discrepancy or the, the main division is between anarchism and minarchism. Minarchism mm -hmm. meaning the absolute least, least state possible, but just enough to prevent a different worse one from replacing it, so to speak. Uh, some people call it the night watchman state, a government that's only powerful enough to hold fair courts and have a monopoly on national defense and uh, a monopoly on criminal justice and that kind of thing. And then there are anarchists who say, nope, to have a sheriff's department at all is might as well be communism, forcing people at gunpoint to pay for security services that they don't necessarily want. You know, half the town is grateful the sheriff's department is here. The other half think that they're an occupying army and would like for them to leave. And so, you know, that's more of the anarchist position is that, you know, free market property rights only and uh, no government at all. Now, I, I usually just side on the anarchist side. I don't, I don't have any use for the state, but that is debatable among libertarians. And, uh, you know, it, it's only the extremely ideological who would say that, no, you absolutely must agree with my take on every bit of this kind of thing. And frankly, the argument for minarchism is reasonable, right? That we live on earth, not in paradise, that there's always going to be violence in society. And so it would be best if we channel that violence through legal institutions that are established by law and have checks and balances and accountability under the law and regular elections and these kinds of things. So that in order to minimize the amount of violence on society, now <laughs> you look at the United States of America and our constitution and the limited republic that it describes. And then you look at the reality of the U.S. government, which is about the size of every other government that's ever existed combined. And you can see how the minarchist argument uh, from the point of view of an anarchist is a very, very slippery slope uh, that ends up leading to the total state in so many circumstances. But then so to get back to your question about this virus and, you know, the legitimacy, I guess, of government deciding for people who have not aggressed against anyone that they have to stay home in the name of a public health emergency, that kind of thing. Uh, I think that is completely debatable within the acceptance, within the confines of a libertarian argument, right? For people who've already accepted the mm -hmm. non-aggression principle, 
there's room for people to argue about that because after all, right, nobody has the right to tell you you can't leave the house. You haven't done anything to anyone. You're not even sick as far as you know. And in this case, this is an especially, you know, devilish virus here where you can spread it and without even having any symptoms and not even know that you're sick at all. So it's not like, okay, I have a fever, but I insist on going to work. You might go to work and have no idea that you're infecting other people and that kind of thing. So these are very exceptional circumstances, and that should never be a blank check for government power to get away with whatever it is they want to get away with, which is what we're seeing all over the world right now. Uh, the excuse for the ultimate clampdown and to track you on your phone everywhere you go and 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 who knows what other you know restrictions they're trying to put down the line here. But I don't think that it's necessarily an abandonment of libertarianism itself to concede that government has a role in restricting behavior in a public health crisis. At the same time, of course, we have to be absolutely as vigilant as ever or more vigilant than ever, because we know that as Condoleezza Rice and Rahm Emanuel agree, you never let a crisis go to waste when you're the state yeah. and they will take <laughs> full advantage to uh, violate as many of our rights as they can for as long as they possibly can. So it's funny you talk about minarchism because that's about as far as I got. I never got to full anarchist. I, I, I got about as far as minarchism and I thought, yeah, okay, I can I can work with this. It's it's a it's a big shift for me after thirty eight years of being somebody who only ever thought of a state, never thought, never knew of an option outside of it mm. before I was introduced to libertarianism. But I got about as far as minarchism, although I've been told that means I'm about six months away from anarchism. Is is that right? Yeah, I mean, once you accept the non aggression <laughs> principle, you have to admit that you know, your local sheriff's department is essentially communism, right? Uh, from each according to his ability to each according to his security needs. And that, you know, frankly, as I said, in my town, half the town hates the cop's guts. Absolutely hates them. <laughs> Don't consider them to be their security force at all. Consider them only to be oppressors, which is correct. In many circumstances, they exist to fine us to death. They're what, you know, old rednecks in the 19th century around here used to call revenuers. They're not really here <laughs> to do anything but come up with excuses to steal from us. And then they call themselves our security force. And that's the reality of it. I think the minarchist argument, a reasonable minarchist argument, accepts the truth of that, but then argues that that's really the best we can do. Because if you have an anarchist state or a state of anarchy, I guess I should say, a lack of a state that then somebody else is going to create one anyway. You need just enough of a state to prevent a different, worse one from replacing it. That kind of an argument. I don't think anyone argues that a minimal state is, uh, among libertarians, that a minimal state is the highest ideal. That would be, I think, a compromise position from, well, we should have absolute total liberty, but since there's no such thing as that, we ought to have black-robed judges who are accountable to the law, which, of course, is a myth itself. I mean, it's completely nuts. I mean, look at the United States of America. I'll let you, you know, discuss and, and, and figure out how things are on your side of the ocean there. But around here, the government is essentially a completely lawless tyranny. And, you know, judges made up there's no law that was ever written that says this. Judges just made up 
that government employees have what they call qualified immunity, which means that they can kill your mama and then say, well, but she was acting furtively and walk right out of the room. Uh, and there's no accountability yeah. for them whatsoever. If a judge, a prosecutor, six cops all conspire to falsely imprison someone that they know to be innocent, there is no accountability for them whatsoever. In fact, there was a, a district attorney prosecutor here in Texas, in central Texas, where I'm from, who knowingly prosecuted an innocent man. And he, what, 20 years later or something, 15 years later, was prosecuted for it. Uh, which was absolutely unheard of, but it was such a proven fact. It was the evidence was uh, absolutely clear that he knew he was prosecuting an innocent man for the murder of his own wife. And this district attorney, for the first time in the history of Texas and maybe in the history of the United States of America, he was convicted and he did one day in jail. Oh, Senate suspended. He didn't even do the one day that he was sentenced to. And the judge who sat there and presided over the whole thing, no accountability whatsoever. The cops who all lied on the stand, no accountability whatsoever. And so the argument that, well, you know, you channel violence through these institutions and under the rule of law so that you can control it and all that, it turns out that that's all mythology too. There's no such thing as the rule of law, just the rule of the will of men, the men who have the power. So it's interesting you say between the UK and the the US, I think at different points of time, we've been the bigger bully globally. And Sure. Uh, no question bigger, about that, big, man. The, you want to talk yeah. raw body counts, the English have killed far more people than the Americans. And that's really saying something when you count Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, etc. Well, yeah, and, and when people... And when people criticize me and go, well, you're just from an imperialistic country, I do say, well, well hold on a second. I wasn't alive then, and I'm, I'm not responsible for what happened. But we also have some problems here th with the uh, extension of the surveillance state now, especially in places like London. But but just going back to this, so th this was, I think the coronavirus was the first real significant challenge to my kind of views on libertarianism. And I've debated it with a few people. There's a guy in Bitcoin called Eric Voorhees. A couple of times I've debated with him, actually. But it's it's been the first time it's been a real challenge on me. But can I can I read you what I put out? Because this, this sure. is what came with a lot of criticism. And your feedback on this would be interesting. So what I said was, right now, I am definitely a statist. I think we need draconian centralised planning to reduce the spread of coronavirus and the overwhelming of the health systems. I am, though, thinking about post-coronavirus and how we ensure governments retract from their new powers. So that right. was my tweet, is that I, th I think we need it right now, but I'm, I'm focused, because the new laws are passing anyway, I'm focused on how do we ensure these essentially temporary powers. But I got a lot of criticism, Scott, a lot of, uh, you know, you status moron, you're going back crying to the government, you know, you were a fake libertarian, et cetera, et cetera. And it, and, and it was really difficult because I wanted to debate this because... Right now, I'm. I have, I have essentially two groups of two communities I, I deal with. I have my Bitcoin online libertarian anarcho-capitalist community, but I also have my Facebook community, which is all my friends who aren't libertarians. They're either Boris Johnson voters or Corbyn voters, and right now they're just people who uh, only think of a state and actually quite scared right now about what is happening. And I kind of go between the two. And when I'm in the libertarian crowd, I'm like, yeah, but look, at there's all these other people over here. What do we do about these people? Can you understand my confusion? Sure. Um, you know, look, I think 
again, we live on earth where everything's a mess, right? We're either fallen yeah. angels or we're highly evolved primates, but either way, you know, there's only room for error in human behavior. That's just how it is. So essentially everything is a compromise one way or the other. And I think that's the only really fair way to look at it. I'm not sure that I agree with you that I'll tell you what it is. My personal uh -huh. view is that I'm locked down. I locked down. You know, I have a, a wife who has lupus, so she's immune system compromised. And so for our family, the deal is we got to not get this virus. It's not a matter of, well, we hope that we get through it all right when we do get it. It's a matter of we have to absolutely not be exposed to this thing. There are other people who, you know, are possibly in the circumstances where it's fair for them to say, you know what, I actually would rather go to work and make my money and I'm not too worried about it because I'm young and I'm strong and I'm not responsible for any, you know, wives or children or anything else and I think I'll be all right. Then again, you know, there's the question of them accidentally spreading a disease they don't even know they have to other people and this kind of thing. But I think it's also important to start with the libertarian insights about central planning in the first place and the number of errors that have been handed down by the centralized authorities. So the news this morning is that Boris Johnson has COVID-19 now. Well, yep, yep. he's the same guy who had decided that everybody ought to go out drinking. Everybody ought to pretend like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. We're just going to lock up the old people as best we can. And then we want to encourage the spread of the disease among the rest of the population because that'll help build up herd immunity. And then yep. he got advice that said, that's really bad advice. In fact, it was the same guy who told him to do that. Uh, this guy, Niall Ferguson at the Imperial College, the same guy who recommended that policy, then changed his mind and said, no, you need to clamp down on everything. So then they announced a clamp down on everything. And now that same guy, Niall Ferguson from the Imperial College, is saying, actually, I may have overreacted there. And it seems like maybe the numbers will be much lower than I thought, you know, garbage in, garbage out. My model there, I kind of screwed up. And so now what does that mean? Does that mean that the clampdown was a mistake, that the first policy was correct and the third one is not? And the problem is we're relying on this one scientist and his models and a prime minister and his government to make these decisions for other people when they clearly don't know what to do either. Uh, mm -hmm. And here in the United States, and this will be, you know, probably buried as they can possibly bury it, but... You know, the story here is that the delay, not just in uh, testing, but the delay in warning the American people about how severe this problem is and is going to be, was all at the hands of the government. Uh, there are clips going around on Twitter from earlier this month, not even in February, in March, where officials in New York and in other places are telling people that go about your business, go to the Chinese New Year parade, go drinking at the pub. The governor of New York said, go to the movies. There's this great new movie out. Go and see it. Don't be afraid of all this misinformation about coronavirus being dangerous, by all means. And so, you know, when this thing was breaking out in January, I knew. And, you know, Tucker Carlson, for example, on Fox News and others were pointing out that this is different than SARS. As bad as SARS was, you're not really contagious with SARS until you have a fever. And so even though it was killing people by the thousands, it was pretty obvious that 
a concerted effort to lock down and contain the virus should be possible. That it's a matter of having these checkpoints to check for fevers and make sure that people with the fevers are not allowed to go and spread it around. And they were able to isolate the thing. Uh, the same thing, a more extreme example, is with Ebola as well. It's very hard to spread. It kills its host so fast. It's very hard for it to spread uh, too far. But it also, people who are infected with it essentially are showing symptoms. And so they're easy to identify and contain. Well, this virus will let you spread it for four or five days sometimes, maybe even longer, without knowing you have it. So fever checkpoints are... From the very beginning, this was obvious in January. As soon as they were reporting, you know, any kind of detailed reports about this virus, it was clear that this thing cannot be contained. That people who are sick and have no idea are going to be traveling around the world and it's going to be coming here. And then what did our government do? Our government kept planes flying in from China for another six weeks or something like that before they stopped Mm -hmm. them. And, And they were telling public health officials... We're telling the people to not worry about it. In fact, in some cases, just like in Italy, they were saying, you're a racist if you want to limit the number of people who are coming back from the Chinese New Year. And they're spreading the disease and killing people. Then the CDC made it and the FDA, that's the Food and Drug Administration and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention here in the U.S., they both made it a crime for anyone to try to make a COVID test except them. And then their test didn't work. And then it took them weeks before they were getting the tests out. And then finally someone came in and shoved some bureaucrats aside and legalized competition in testing and legalized private companies developing their own tests as fast as they can. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they legalized them, Scott and White, which is a hospital company here in Texas, I'm not sure if it's a nationwide chain or not, but... It's a a hospital chain here in Texas. They immediately made their own test and started doing drive-through testing right here in my neighborhood. And the only thing that was preventing them from doing that was a government gun to their head telling them no. And in fact, Mm -hmm. this is also another interesting aspect was, and this was a a big uh, scandal in the New York Times that they ran, where in Seattle, which was the hotbed uh, here in the U.S., the first real hotbed of the infection, They were already in the middle of a massive study of all of the victims of the flu in Washington state. And they were collecting the samples from everyone who was coming in with flu-like symptoms. And so they just wanted to test the samples that they already had. And the government would not let them do it for weeks and weeks and weeks. And finally, this doctor squealed to the New York Times and said, the government won't let us test all these samples we already have of people with respiratory infections. And then when they were finally, I think they just finally went ahead and started breaking the rules and doing the tests anyway, after waiting weeks because they were commanded to wait They obeyed. And then when they finally started testing, they could see that, oh, man, people have had this virus here in Washington state for weeks and weeks and weeks before we even knew it. And it was the government who was standing in their way. So this is what the great libertarian uh, presidential candidate and and um, activist Harry Brown used to call the government breaking your legs and then handing you some crutches. Where would you be without us? Well, we might not have an outbreak at all. Right. If the free market had been allowed to work. In Germany, for example, they had a great test. They tried to offer it to the Americans. The Americans told them to go to hell. 
rejected the test and made it a crime for doctors in America to adopt the German test and to use that that kit. Um, and in Germany, that's not the case. In Germany, they've been testing like crazy and they've had an open market in the creation of the tests. So they have all the tests that they need and they've done a much better job of clamping down on the spread there than they have here for that purpose. And so here these people are to a great degree the reason why people are sick and dying. And then they turn around and holler at us that the total state is the only solution to the problem that they helped to cause. Next up, I talked to Scott more about libertarian responses to the coronavirus. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. So let's talk about Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. And at these crazy times when the governments are printing so much money, this really is a test for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is meant to be an answer to this. It's meant to protect our wealth. So there is no better place if you want to stack those SaaS, if you do want to get some more Bitcoin, is to head over to Kraken. They are consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Their platform provides world-class financial stability. They've got amazing customer support, which will answer all your questions. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you are, they will get back to you. They've got amazing account management program. And they also have a beautiful mobile-first app that they launched last year, which allows you to trade Bitcoin wherever you are, whatever you're doing. There is no better place to buy Bitcoin. Just head over to Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And also, we have the amazing BlockFi. And I caught up with the team yesterday telling me all about their amazing plans for this year. So much stuff is happening. And they've already had a massive year. They've raised a bunch of money. And they've opened up their platform for USD wires so you can purchase the Gemini Dollar GUSD and begin earning up to 8.6% on USD denominated assets. They already have their crypto back loans. They already have your interest accounts where you can earn interest on Bitcoin, Ether and GUSD, which I am a customer of. I do love getting my interest every month. The mobile app is coming. The Satsback credit card is coming. It is going to be a massive year for BlockFi. If you want to find out more, head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. There's a, there's a couple of routes we can go down here, and probably we should do both. There is the how this would have played out potentially uh, under a libertarian society without a state, but also under the state, what our expectations are. Because again, one of the things I really liked about the article that came out this morning, and it reflects a question I've asked a couple of libertarians before when trying to debate them, is the question I, I always ask is, how do we wean ourselves off the state? And, and the article talks about the big red button. It doesn't exist. And actually, I, I think it's very a rational argument because it talks about the dangers of having the big red button because because society isn't ready. Society could collapse. They could cause a lot of harm by having that big red button. I'm not sure if you agree with that point in the article because you didn't actually write it. But that's one of the areas I'd like to kind of focus on is even if even though the state has made some mistakes, some of the questions I wanted to ask, because this is where it's really challenged my views on libertarianism, is that, so firstly, in terms of uh, restricting movement. So I, Scott, very early on, restricted my movement and specifically my dad my dad's 72 and he's a smoker so he's high risk he has bronchitis he's been locked down for weeks 
we know and we've seen on the news, we've seen the people partying, we've seen them on the beaches, we know people aren't responsible. And in not being responsible, they may be spreading the illness and making it worse and making people sick. So where do you sit on the the creation of rules that restrict movement and how does that challenge your own views on libertarianism? Well, you know, I'm, I'm pretty flexible on this. I mean, honestly, I'm an anti-war guy. And so I really just focus on the very worst things that my government is doing all the time. And I mostly leave a lot of the libertarian theory and debates to the experts on those areas. Um, I'm actually not that smart to do a lot of philosophizing. You know, I'm more of a names and dates guy. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty much in line with Sheldon. I'll tell you, at the Institute... You know, I'm the founder and the director of the Libertarian Institute. And, you know, my own party line is locking down my own people as best as I can. You know, my parents, my wife, uh, that kind of thing. And, and giving advice to my friends who will listen that, you know, you need to really take this seriously and protect yourself. At the same time, I've run a lot of articles uh, at the Institute you know, I, I guess in other words, I'm trying to say my personal opinion is not the party line of the Institute, the part okay. because, it, well, actually, that's not really true. I mean, I guess I pretty much agree that, but the party line with the Institute is that while some of this may be necessary, that boy, we better be even more jealous of our freedom than ever before. We better be ready to push back against all these restrictions as hard as we can, as soon as we can. And so as Sheldon is saying here, is this the kind of emergency where maybe we really do need to have some travel restrictions and this kind of thing? Eh, you know what? I can be flexible on that on a temporary basis. But the problem is what uh, the great libertarian economist Robert Higgs calls the ratchet effect. Mm -hmm. And this, is, this says that whenever there is a crisis, the government will always gain power because they're a monopoly, right? Even when it's all their fault. We don't we can't fire them and replace them with an entirely different security force. Even when they completely fail, they gain from it. Look at the September 11th attack, for example, where the FBI, the CIA and the NSA, any one of those agencies could have stopped the attack. But because they all hated each other so much and refused to work with each other at all and put their own bureaucratic interests above the interests of the American people, the attack was allowed to take place anyway. And then what do they do? They turn around and go, oh, you have to give us total power over you to read your email, to track your cell phone, to do all these things in order to keep you safe when they're the ones who uh, actually created the terrorist group in the first place and then failed to protect us from it. Uh, oh, well, enraged them and turned them against us and then failed to protect us from it. So that's the kind of dynamic that we have to really be aware of. Oh, and then I'm sorry, I meant to finish with the ratchet effect. That means that once the crisis has abated, as Emperor Palpatine put it, the power never returns to the way it was before. You never mm -hmm. go back to the day before the crisis broke out. And that's a consistent theme through all of American history. Each and every yep. one of the wars, the Great Depression, or any other thing like that. And I'm sure this will be no different. It, it was a scandal when Edward Snowden leaked that they keep all of your cell phone location data for five years that means that they can look at their computer and they can see everywhere you've gone for five years, every back seat of a car that you've ridden in and everyone else who was in that car with you at the time, every living room where you ever spent an hour drinking with your friend and talking about who knows what, and they can go back 
And on this basis is how they murder Afghans every day. They go, well, link analysis says that this guy knows this guy who knows this guy. But they're not even talking about people. They're talking about phone numbers. This phone number is connected to that phone number, is connected to this phone that at one time was in this neighborhood in the Helmand province, which we know to be a hotbed of Taliban activity. Bam, they drop a 500-pound bomb on somebody's head based on what's essentially kooky conspiracy theories based off of minimal data, right? Not even real information, but just data. Here's a phone number. Bomb it. And so, but now this is, they plan on tracking us from now on. And they're talking openly about what used to be a top secret kind of a thing before Snowden leaked the truth to us. Now they're saying, well, this is how we'll prevent the virus. We'll just track everyone's cell phone around and, um, and make sure everywhere you've been and anyone that you've been near and this kind of deal. And so now let's pretend that they invent a foolproof vaccine next month and the problem is gone. Are they going to give up that power yeah, and say that they the don't need one? it anymore? No, they're not. They're going to say, well, we need this for the next time. And, and that's just one example of many. Same thing with the travel restrictions. Same thing with the use of National Guard troops who, you know, typically they're here to pile sandbags in the event of a flood or this kind of thing. But they could have, you could have military authorities uh, and, and pseudo-military authorities like the National Guard gaining more and more power over civilian life here. And then, of course, it'll never be repealed all the way back to the way it was before. And that's the kind of thing where even if you're flexible on your principles in an emergency like this, a public health crisis like this, that you have to understand that the incentives and the economics of bureaucracy and politics mandate that they will amass as much power as they possibly can and they will give up as little of it as they possibly can. And they will only give up what we force them to give up. And, and you won't have me disagree with you on any of the war stuff. And I, I understand the fear. I would probably be even more fearful in the US. I, I think I, I think there's a slight difference in the UK, but although it's only marginal. But I am going to push you on one thing, because th th this is where I, I am challenging myself, Scott, is that, do and it's quite a direct question, but do you agree with the restrictions on movement, or do you reluctantly accept it? I and I know that's a tough question to ask you. Yeah, no, I reluctantly accept it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure not going to war over the mayor saying everyone stay home. You know, he doesn't have the authority to really make that stick and not for very long. On the other hand, if Donald Trump, and this is absolute worst case scenario, I'm not predicting this, I'm not saying this, but just as a hypothetical example, if Donald Trump declares full martial law, and suspends the Constitution and says that the U.S. Army is now in charge, resist and be shot, then I am going to war over that. I'm not going to allow that to happen in my state. And, and I'll tell you what, too. It's no coincidence that the biggest military base in America, Fort Hood, is 100 miles up the road from the capital of Texas. Okay? And that is to prevent the state of Texas from ever again entertaining the possibility of secession, that they'll kill us all first. That's the threat. That's the reason that Fort Hood is there. No other reason. And it's not like Texas is at threat of being invaded by what, North Vietnam or something, right? Um, and But I should say at the same time, 
I don't think the military wants to take over the country any more than I want them to. And I don't think that Donald Trump is in a hurry to make any massive changes like that. In fact, it's funny to see on Twitter all day, the liberals who think that Donald Trump is literally Hitler are demanding that he nationalize all business, that he invoke the Defense Preparedness Act and take full government command control over whichever industries they think is necessary to force them to produce enough ventilators or whatever it is. And now all these people who are terrified of Donald Trump's power now only hate him for not seizing enough of it quickly enough, and <laughs> which is a hell of a riddle, but that's where we're at. But I, no, I... I um, I don't support, I really don't support the government doing a thing to anyone or threatening anyone, but I do reluctantly accept it because after all, this is an emergency, a legitimate emergency. You know, it's not, and, and, and seriously, you know what? The September 11th attack, for example, let's go back to that. That was an emergency on one day. Okay. But they lied. And they tried to make the American people believe that there could be Al-Qaeda sleeper cells in your town, too. And if we weren't here to protect you, you'd probably all be dead. Saddam would give Osama a nuke and kill you in your jammies in the middle of the night. And all of these things and deliberately tried to frighten people into thinking that there was a permanent emergency. When, in fact, no, there were 20-something Al-Qaeda guys in the country, the hijackers and their few handlers. The handlers escaped. And the hijackers all died on the day of the attack. And there was not one single Al-Qaeda guy left in Dallas, in Houston, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, in Miami, anywhere in this country. They just didn't exist. And our government said, well, no, you know how it is. It's the Islamo-fascist caliphate, which was just this made-up thing. It couldn't exist anywhere in the world. There are states where this caliphate was supposed to be. But they tried to make everybody's mama afraid that... And, and stay afraid until they could drum until they could build up enough troops in Kuwait to invade Iraq, you know, was their main agenda at that time. So they will do anything they can to lie and exploit and drum up fear in order to, uh, you know, exploit that fear to get away with whatever their agendas are. So I think whether it's a virus or whether it's a terrorist attack, we all got to put our thinking caps on. And, and keep our own counsel about just how dangerous any one of these crises are and just how far we should let these people cross their lines. But, but where do you think it happens? Because I, I don't... So I'm imagining the UK Cobra meetings that Boris has been holding. I don't imagine they're in there rubbing their hands, thinking, right, here's a chance for new powers. I actually just think they are trying to reduce death and... and stop the overrun of the hospitals and even donald trump even but donald that's trump, beside the point right well, no, that's no. the thing of it right is it doesn't matter that it's it's the economics of politics right this is just how it goes whatever if you assume the very best of intentions for example let's pretend that george bush and them were not deliberately trying to deceive us into supporting the iraq war but they were really just doing their best a lot of people really do believe that that they were really afraid that saddam was going to give chemical weapons to osama to use against us well that was an overblown fear of theirs and whatever it was that they did to prevent that fear from being realized was by far a terrible overreaction. So you don't have to read George Bush's mind or Paul Wolfowitz's mind and know just how 
deceitful they really were being. You could just take it at face value. They thought the guy with the clean shaven chin and the beret was going to give chemical weapons he didn't have to his enemy, Osama bin Laden, the religious nut who would have just as easily preferred to cut his throat as any of ours. And so... Mm -hmm. And then, but look, they got a million people killed and then they spread the war on and killed another million people after that. And at least another half a million by spreading, no, you know, another million probably. If you count Libya, Syria, and Yemen, and we're talking about at least near 2 million dead, innocent people who had nothing to do with attacking the United States of America at all. So forget motives. That's how government acts. That's what they do. It's just like Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, in episode two when Anakin says, oh, no, not another lecture on the economics of politics. But that's what it is, right? It's, it's the, the principles of bureaucracy. Yeah, but you won't, you won't get me arguing with, with these points. I, I completely agree. But, do, I mean, do you find this reluctant acceptance is, is a real challenge to almost libertarian identity? Because. No. You don't think it is no, because I, don't think I think so. I, just, as, I th- just as Sheldon says today, and there ain't nobody more libertarian than Sheldon Richmond. I mean, he's yeah. been one of the leaders of our movement in American society for thirty years now, maybe more. And but do you think, as not having, to, you know, because one of the problems with the coronavirus, right, is this lag, is the fact that people are spreading it without knowing, and you you don't tend to know the real impact until two to three, maybe four weeks later. So this lag mm-hmm. is itself is quite dangerous. Therefore, a reluctant acceptance of maybe some quite draconian measures is is about as far as you can go as a libertarian without actually then saying, I actually agree. I actually want these measures in place. But to want these measures in place opens you up to quite high-level criticisms of libertarianism. Well, you you know, I mean, look, it's a balance, right? Just just like with the argument, you know, in non-virus times between... Uh, minarchism and anarchism, for example, that, you know, the question is, well, for example, the, the minarchist argument is that you will be more free under a minarchy than under a purely principled anarchy, because that purely principled anarchy will end up leading to more violence and more coercion anyway. That's the argument, right? Is yep. that That's why to accept a minimal state is because it's, it would actually be less violent and more free than a system of anarchism, which I don't necessarily agree with this, but there are some who, who look at uh, arguments for anarcho-capitalism and say, well, geez, it seems like that would lead to a few property owners and sort of a return to feudalism rather than, you know, everyone is a property owner, which is, you know, would be my preference, right? We'd have... Mm. Uh, 7 billion little nation states in the world, not, you know, 35 owned by, you know, a private, essentially kings or something like that. So yes, it, it's, it's a compromise. I don't think uh, I'm reluctant to accept it and, and rather than support it as you, as you put it, because I am, but you're not you know, opposing really mindful of the state and its abuses and, and how much, Suffering is going to come because of the clampdown itself. Again, I favor clampdown for my own family, but I don't really think I'm in the position to insist on it for every other person. And look at the argument going around right now about the economy and how soon before people can get back to work till they can leave their houses and go back to work. And especially on the left, people are saying, oh, yeah, sure. Sacrifice human 
life just for the Dow Jones God or something like that. But a shutdown economy kills people too. You know, the economy is how people make money and take care of themselves. The stress of being locked up and and being unable to provide for their family leads to heart attacks. The the unemployment rate leads to increases in suicides. The you know, there's all kinds of secondary effects from having this kind of level of clampdown and unemployment and that kind of thing. And at some point there's the balance goes the other way, right? At some point we're going to kill more people through suicides than would die of the virus possibly. Right. So there's, there's gotta be a balance in there. People have to, you know, not look at these things as just one way or the other. There's got to be a safe middle ground and people got to be able to, to fight over that and figure out where that is. At some point it would be better to allow people to go back to work to prevent a level of Great Depression that's just going to destroy our society for years into the future. And we already have people here. I don't know in England, but here people are already absolutely at each other's throats. You know, the left and the right hate each other more than ever before. And you put our society through this kind of stress, it could lead to far worse problems than an epidemic like this. But let me ask you, but how do you, it's, yeah, that's the thing, conceivably. But how do you calculate mm-hmm. that? How do you calculate the future risks? Good and if, question. And, and if, the, if, yeah. the, if, if the principle is uh, life, then surely you have to make the decision in front of you now, which is the preservation of life of those who might get sick. At what point do you start saying, well, I think there might be X number of suicides? Because it really is prediction models, and, and we already know with this that prediction models can be wrong. So I, I, I always fall on the side of we've just got to start with life and we can't do uh, future prediction models because we don't know what's going to happen. And again, it's something I've really wrestled with. Um, yeah. well, but really it's, it's wrestled future with. prediction models in both cases, right? Yeah. I mean, I read a thing the other day. I don't know that this is a Short fact, term and long term. The thing that I read said that for every 1%, the unemployment rate goes up, typically speaking, the suicide rate goes up 3%. Right. And, and I know from, you know, cause I'm just a news head. I know that from 2008 and 2009, from the crash, that there was just an absolute epidemic of murder suicides where desperate men kill their kids, their wife, and then themselves. And it happens all the time because they lose their business. They lose their house. They lose their ability to take care of their people. And they go, what am I going to do? I'm going to give my children over to some foster father that I don't know. Nope. And they choose to kill them instead, and then yeah, themselves. And, uh, I mean, this ex- is serious consequences of the clampdown. Forget the virus, right? That's yeah. the kind of danger that we're dealing with. And and one of the things I think we have to admit it, it's really really complicated. These scenarios that people are dealing with are compli- complicated. And also, one of the things I've been doing is when anybody has a strong opinion, I've been pushing them and say, "Well, what would you do?" And the reason I've been asking that because if they turn around to me and say, "Well, what would you do?" I was like. Do you know what? I really don't. I, excuse my language. I don't fucking know. I, and I'm glad I'm in some way, Scott. I'm glad I don't have to make the decision because sometimes yeah, it's a lose I'm with lose. You. What, whatever you do, I it's a lose lose decision. And I really don't know how you model it. But what I would say is I, I refer to the doctors. What are the doctors saying and what do the doctors need? And let's give them everything they need right now. But I'm very fearful of both sides. I, I put out another tweet, Scott. I said, in a few months, a bunch of people are going to be on the wrong side of history. Either we overreacted or we underreacted, and I don't think we we really yeah. know. And I think it's really hard 
to measure it. Let me ask you another question. No, and it's going to be know- both, right? In, 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 yes, we're going to be overreacting and underreacting in different circumstances. Let me say one more thing real quick for your next yeah. question, which is my sister's a nurse. And she, mm-hmm. in fact, one of her very good friends is an epidemiologist. And so she's had, you know, a very good insight into what's going on here from the beginning. And she has a lot of experience in the healthcare field and that kind of deal. And she's also a libertarian. She has said this. No, she's not a libertarian. She's just a plain old nurse. Uh, (laughs) She's not very ideological at all. But she's saying, listen, this is uh, to her, the panic is worse. And, And that's not playing down the virus at all. The virus is terrible, but people are overreacting. And what's going to happen is you're going to have collateral damage as the military calls it all over the place where people are dying of the heart attacks and strokes that they have every day but now they're going to die of them instead of being saved and that's because they're afraid to call 911 or because the 911 line is completely jammed with false alarms over dry coughs or you know people can't get their heart medicine or whatever it is again the suicide rate is going to go up as people are desperate and afraid and all of these kinds of things. And, and so the solution can be more harm than good. And this is coming from a lady who is treating people with COVID on a daily mm-hmm. basis and who knows that she could die of it. She could be exposed and die of it. And she's still saying that the fear and the clamp down can be worse. So everybody put on your thinking cap, your wisdom cap, and, and try to be as smart about this as you can. Be concerned. Be concerned enough to make smart decisions, but don't be afraid and drive yourself into the grave on irrational fear. Yeah. Well, it's just, it really is a bunch of trade-offs and knowing when to make those trade-offs, which are highly complicated. Right. And and I think anyone who doesn't admit this is complicated or anyone who is 100% sure in one direction, I actually struggle with that person. I wonder where they're such where they have such conviction in their own solution to this comes from. Because I think Scott, this is so hard. But let me ask you another thing. So, and I think I know where you're going part on this. So obviously, we're having an unprecedented financial stimulus package, not only in the US, the UK, France, everywhere, every single country. Where do you? Where do you sit on that in terms of the acceptance that we have a state? Where do you sit on that? And there's two different areas because there is the the financial package to support companies and there's a financial package to support individuals. And what I've found is that when I've been pushing people, especially libertarians, they all say, let the companies fail. And I understand that. I've seen a mixed response with whether there should be some kind of financial support for the individuals. And I'd be interested to know what you think. Well, yeah, that's where I fall. When it comes to the corporations, absolutely, they should be allowed to fail. And I'll get back to that and elaborate more in a second. When it comes to on the individual basis, well, we are all forced to pay into unemployment insurance. They take it right out of our checks. And so if people are filing for unemployment and getting their wages compensated for that, then I don't have a problem with that other than the fact that the government already spent your money on something else. And this is new money they're going to have to come up with somehow in order to pay those benefits. But, you know, I do not begrudge people who are, you know, on the lower end of the income scale getting 
either unemployment insurance or, you know, food stamps if necessary. There's talk about rent holidays and then mortgage holidays too. You know, there's this crazy idea on the left. It's just so commie and ridiculous that all landlords are these horrible, evil tyrants. Far worse than a cop is the guy who owns a house and lets you live in it based on a contract that you signed for an agreed upon price and how, you know, isn't it hilarious that you're going to have all these renters sticking the the homeowners and apartment complex owners with the bill somehow? Well, those people are, you know, almost I mean, there are massive multinational corporations that own apartment complexes and stuff. But for the most part, we're talking about relatively small businesses and single proprietorships that own these properties and who they still have to pay their mortgage. And then but the bank gets a big bailout. So, you know what? It makes more sense, doesn't it, to give the renters and the mortgage payers a break. And um, especially if the bank is getting a bailout, what right do they have to then insist that everybody has to pay on time or else get foreclosed on and these kinds of things? And that's the kind of deal where I think it's fair for people to be flexible in in an emergency. But then again, when it comes to these banks, back to the corporations, when it comes to these banks... The airlines and all of these other major corporations who are lining up for their bailout, screw them. How dare they? You know, Boeing especially. Look at Boeing, where their stock price is through the floor and their their corporation is in jeopardy because they ran it into the ground. They made the decision that it would be better to let people fall out of the sky and die than to ditch the 737 and come up with a new, more fuel-efficient plane. And so they created a 737 MAX, which was a disaster, Mm -hmm. uh, where they had to move the engines into a place where it's completely unaerodynamic and unworkable, and then try to compensate for that with all of these, you know, fancy um, computer algorithms and whatever to try to keep the planes in the sky. And then as soon as you have one little sensor fail, you got 600 people died. Now Boeing wants us to forget all of that, and they want us to pretend that the problem with their company is not them and the decisions that they've made, but, oh, geez, this virus that's nobody's fault that just came out of nowhere. Well, you know what? They spent the last 10 years buying back their own stock to pump up their own stock price and say, and on money that they borrowed at 0% artificially low interest rates, and they saved none of it in a rainy day fund for when the crisis comes. And, mm-hmm. and this is, and it goes for United and American and all the other airlines too. They know that crises break out from time to time. They know that there's a massive boom bust cycle at the very least. They know that there's a recession coming at some point and that air travel is going to go down. Their revenues are going to go down. And yet, instead of saving for a rainy day, instead of resolving their conflicts with uh, their labor, you know, negotiations and all the other things, they do nothing but kick the can down the road because they are betting that the government will bail them out at our expense. So what's the opposite of that? Let them fail. Now, the deal with that, and people have to understand this, and I don't know if people do understand this. But if you let American and United and Boeing that makes the planes they fly fail, then they go to bankruptcy court. And entrepreneurs who will take those same resources and put them to a more efficient use will buy up those resources and will put them to more efficient use. 
and they'll learn the lesson that, boy, we better save for a rainy day, unlike the predecessors we bought all these planes from who refused to do so. And so, you know, the thing about libertarians that especially people on the left misunderstand and people on the right misunderstand this about libertarians, too. They think that we are here essentially as cover for big business, that, oh, freedom means big business getting away with whatever they want, that that's what we favor is business itself. But that's not true. What we favor is capitalism. And by the ism there, I don't mean as a system of state power. I mean, as a system of profit and loss among private property Mm -hmm. owners on the market. And that means profit and loss. And that means when somebody drives their company into the ground or when they don't prepare for crises like this that do happen, that then they have to be made to suffer the consequences of that. And the bigger the corporation, the more responsible they are. So Citigroup and Goldman Sachs and you know JP Morgan and whichever giant banks on Wall Street the, all of the uh, airplane companies and the hotel companies and all of these people who were not prepared for this, they, quote unquote, deserve to fail and they should fail. And then their productive resources will be redistributed through auction at bankruptcy court. And, mm-hmm. and then they'll be put back to efficient use. But the last thing in the world that should be going on right now is what is actually going on, uh, regardless of what the Congress passes here. This is the same thing in 08 and 09, right? The Congress passes TARP for a few hundred billion, this, that, the other thing. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve in just the last, you know, 10, 15 days has created more than a trillion dollars of new money and have spent approximately a hundred billion dollars a day buying up bad debt from these failed companies, which is just propping up zombie companies, propping up incompetent boards of directors and CEOs who have gotten their companies into this mess in the first place, and then prolonging their dysfunction and on the backs of the working people of America, right? It's, you know, that's us why regular thought, that's people why I thought have to carry bowling around on our back. How is that fair? It's yeah. crazy. That's what I thought you'd say about the companies. Now, let me tell you what one guy said to me. I, I said to him, well, what happens if next month and there's 10 million unemployed? And he said, I would do nothing for those 10 million directly. It's not the government's role to do something. It's the market's role. And I couldn't help but think that sounds a little bit psychopathic. <laughs> I couldn't help but think it. I, I, the, for me to try and imagine you know, 5, 10 million people suddenly unemployed, unable to leave their home and having no money, what is what 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 comes out of that? And I can only imagine... A rise in crime, a rise in violence, a rise in protest, social unrest. That that's something I'm I'm nervous about. But is that something I'm nervous about because I'm conditioned to the state, or do you do you are you nervous about that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think as as Sheldon wrote in his article, we don't have a red button that gets rid of all of the state at once, right? So what you know, all other things being equal, what that sounds like is bailouts for billionaires, but not for regular Joes. And, and uh, that is hardly sustainable at all, right? When, when to a great degree, it's these big businesses who've got us into this mess, economically speaking, by not having prepared for a rainy day or these kinds of eventualities. So, you know, I think for a libertarian to argue that 
you know, well, geez, we're against the welfare state at all times. So we ought to abolish it at the stroke of a pen right this instant in the middle of a global epidemic is at the very least kind of tone deaf, but also, you know, in practice would be destructive, would be probably more harm than good to do it that way. Mm. I mean, what we really need is if you remember when Ron Paul ran for president in 08 and in 2012, they would constantly ask him about the welfare state because again, most people think for whatever reason that libertarians are just here to cover for the rich and are against, you know, the welfare state safety net for the poor, you know, that that's really what we're here for and, and that kind of thing. Well, Ron Paul would always answer the same way. He would say, what we should do is we should abolish the empire. We should bring all of our troops home from Germany, Japan, Korea, and the entire Middle East. We should, we should absolutely downsize our military force by more than two thirds, three quarters. At one point he told the, the Washington Post, come on, we could defend this country with a couple of good submarines, which is true. <laughs> Which is true. Yeah. And um, I mean, one one American nuclear submarine could wipe out every major city in Russia. Uh, one more could wipe out every major city in China, assuming I'm not saying that would be fair, but I'm just saying the reality is, is we can deter attack on this country with a couple of good submarines. We could save a trillion dollars a year. And then, according to Ron, we would then use that money to slowly and deliberately and carefully transition away from a welfare state, one that people have been forced to pay into their entire lives and that they've been accustomed to becoming dependent on. And rather than kicking a bunch of little old ladies out in the street, that we would find a way to transition away from the welfare state because it is ultimately unsustainable anyway, regardless of whether you approve of it or not. It cannot work over the long term. It's just as more and more baby boomers retire and there are fewer and fewer uh, working age people to support them. It, it, it will become impossible. So what, what should we do? We should find a really, and this is a very, very principled libertarian, Ron Paul. He's against the welfare state, but also he's not mm-hmm. crazy, right? And, and he cares about people. <laughs> he really doesn't want to see anybody kicked out on the street. And so that would be his priority would be to figure out a way to come up with a system where in the future people can opt out. And where we can transition to a system where it's purely voluntary um, in basis. And the way that we'll be able to afford to do it is we'll force our government to stop doing all of the worst things that it's doing first in order to shore up the things that are the least destructive. All right. Well, listen, look, Scott, I'm conscious of time. Um, I have so many things. Oh, and I'm sorry. I'm actually late. I realize. (laughs) I I had three more questions for you. Can I give one of them? Yeah, go ahead. Very last question. And so my last question for you is, I've got, I can't let you leave without asking this. Have you looked into our Bitcoin world? Because as a libertarian and the Austrian economists, they want to separate money and state. And, and, but I have not seen you talk about it at all. Have you looked into our world? Have I looked into exactly what now? So into the Bitcoin, Bitcoin itself? In the Bitcoin world, yeah. And do you have opinions yeah, on Oh, the Bitcoin world. Yes. Um, you know, honestly, I, I uh, am kicking myself constantly because I'm one of the very first people to know about it. I knew about it in the very beginning of January 2009 is when I was first informed about Bitcoin. And I remember thinking, ah, geez, how much is that ever going to be worth? And if it, at that point, it was worth fractions of a penny, 0.0002 cents or something like that. And if I'd invested then, I'd be a zillionaire now. 
and I've known about it all along. But frankly, I work for nonprofit institutions for a very little amount of money. I have, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, essentially no savings. And I've never had any money to invest in anything other than keeping the lights on and and continuing to to just do my job as I do. And, and hopefully someday I'll figure out how to make money has been my my economic policy all along. So I have not focused on it nearly enough, but I yeah. do support it in principle. I think it's a great idea. And I think separating society and state in every way possible is the right idea. And looking at the amount of new money that they're creating now, I think for anyone who does have some savings, they would be nuts to uh, not be buying uh, alternative cryptocurrencies, gold and silver and whatever they can to diversify out of the dollar. The dollar is being propped up right now because people are fleeing the stock market for the dollar. But pretty soon they're going to be fleeing the dollar for anything else. In fact, even Goldman Sachs the other day recommended that people buy gold as the currency of last resort, as they called it. So um, I think that would definitely be a smart thing for people to look into. And especially, you know, as Jeremy Sapienza says, you take every central bank on earth, they don't know how to do anything except print money. That's all they do. That's all they know how to do is print more than what prices are going up. We better print more money so we can afford the rising prices. And that's the way they all look at it. And that's the way they all always will. So as long as that's the world we're living in, then people absolutely need a hedge against that. Oh, wow. Well, listen, look, we, we should do it again sometime because I think there's uh, I, th- I think there's some things about Bitcoin that you would really appreciate if you haven't gone down the full rabbit hole. L- listen, look, appreciate your time, Scott. I know you're busy. Um, I have bought Fool's Errand. I will have a listen to it before we speak again sometime. But appreciate everything you're doing and thank you for coming on the show. Great. Thank you, Peter. Really appreciate it. Okay. So what did you think of that one? Did you enjoy that? Was it good to hear from Scott? I really enjoyed this one, actually, and I really appreciate Scott's rational approach to the debate. I found it quite difficult when trying to wrestle with these subjects because there are different worlds out there. I've got a whole bunch of friends. I call them my Facebook crowd. This isn't my Twitter crowd. This is the Facebook lot who are just kind of normal people who who do believe in the state, who will vote in an election, who don't even consider this option of a no state or libertarianism. And they're losing their jobs or they're going into work in, in hospitals and they're facing very difficult situations and they're scared. And I am trying to wrestle with all these complicated subjects rather than just take this very firm only one view. So I've been wrestling with you, so it's great to have him on. He's obviously a staunch libertarian, but he clearly wants minimal or no state intervention in anything. But I liked how he was sympathetic to the ordinary situation we are in. And at least in an imperfect world that we live in, didn't necessarily write off that maybe in extreme circumstances there is a response required, but also standing by our principles that we should be absolutely holding the state to retracting these powers if possible. Look, I know in the US that hasn't happened. The UK is slightly different. We're already seeing a backlash from MPs with regards to the overreach of some of the police, which is very interesting. We've got to sometimes remember there's different people in the world experiencing different things. We're also seeing some bloody shit things in places like India and Africa where the police are full-on gangsters going out and beating people up which is also bullshit um but yeah it's great to have scott on really appreciate this if you have any questions about the show do feel free to reach out to me my email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com 